My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And normally, what we would be doing is continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for about 84 years. And, you know, we've got a couple years to go. You know, like the lady in Titanic. It's been 84 years. Like, that's what it feels like sometimes. But we're taking a break from that in the month of May. And we're doing something completely different. Well, not completely. We're still in the Bible. And this morning, we're going to cover this book from cover to cover. We're going to talk about God's big story and how it relates to us. Where do we fit in God's big story? And what is our identity in the midst of the redemptive historical narrative? But it's still going to be short. We're going to cover the whole Bible, though. So normally we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, and we do that on purpose. That's our diet here, a steady diet of the next verse and the next verse and the next verse, because we believe that's how God normally works in our lives. There are moments that we all tell stories about and we all rejoice in when we know that God shows up in a special way, in a memorable way, in an unusual way. But we know that God grows us just like he grows our sweet little babies one day at a time. And that sometimes you don't even see the difference if you notice them and you're around them every single day. So the same way that that beautiful growth happens, that's how we use our sermon times, one foot in front of the other, one verse after the next verse. And we see God meet us there every week. We see God showing us things that we would have never seen if we would have just been picking and choosing the topics for ourselves. When we preach verse by verse around here, that shows us, number one, that God really wants us to see the whole counsel. He wants us to understand the entire book, not just the things that might be naturally interesting to us. He wants us to have a well-rounded understanding of the Bible. And we can't do that alone because we just have references and we have different ways that God has specifically made us. So we're going to be more interested in one thing than the other thing. So having that structure makes sure that we get a well-rounded understanding. And also, it protects us from skipping the hard stuff, right? You ever seen something on a list and you're like, eh, and you move it to the bottom because you're like, I'll get to that later. And then, I don't know, do you? <laughs> Husbands, do you ever get to the hard thing on the list? So when we preach verse by verse by verse, we make sure that God like, forces us to deal with the things that might be uncomfortable. And Pastor Josh, over the last few weeks, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, he's had to preach uncomfortable truths. He's had to talk about the things that the Lord talked about and the Lord brought up. And because we love y'all and we want you to like us, amen, like, we maybe wouldn't pick the things that would be so controversial, because we want to have flourishing relationships and we don't want the discord, but God calls us to something higher. And so verse by verse locks us into that. And that's for God's ultimate glory. All that to say, for us to take a break and a five-week break from doing something like that to do something slightly different means that for Pastor Josh and I, something has to be really important. Something has to be really important pressing and something that we really want you to understand, to take that much of a break from something that's that central to what we do on Sunday mornings. And we think that the topic that I want to show you and we want to walk together in 
through the month of May is pretty important. The thing that we're going to talk about this month, we'll do two things, and I'm not trying to build it up too much, but two things that I want you to see in the month of May from this topic, knowing who you are in God as his image bearer will be, number one, foundational to living a faithful life, obedient to God's word, and it will also help you to find the true and lasting joy in Christ by living in the identity that you already have and that God has already given to you. So we're going to break from the verse by verse, and we're going to talk about something in kind of a systematic way in order for you to see what does the Bible say about who I am and how does that overflow into how I live. It's like the cheesy mall sign where you have to go up and find the little star. Like we're helping you locate your identity in the midst of noise and chaos and seemingly infinite choices in your life. Who am I? Where am I going? Why does that matter? So in order to locate that, let's zoom out as far as we can in the church and let's go back to the basics of what we are, who we are as a church. There are a lot of things that characterize us as a church, but when you boil it all down, essentially it comes down to this one sentence. We are people helping people find and follow Jesus. So we are more than that. We're smiling faces and cannon coffee and stained glass. And, but we're not less than people helping people find and follow Jesus. And within that statement, there's only one word in there that's repeated. And it's the word people, right? It's the word so nice we used it twice. And so we're going to end up talking about who are people and who does God say that we are, every human every man and woman that has ever lived, and why should you care about that? So if you don't get anything else out of the month of May, get this statement here. Every person that has ever lived bears the image of God. Every single one of them. Even that one that you're thinking about right now. They bear the image of God. And if we truly believe that, it will revolutionize the way that we love and live with God and others. If we truly understand what the image of God is, and we truly believe it and act on it, it's going to change the way that we love God and live with God. It's going to change the way that we love others, even those others, and the way that we live with them, and the way that God will motivate our heart to serve those people. So what we'll be studying this month we'll end up talking about groups of people throughout the world, things that might make you uncomfortable, assumptions that you might have that the scriptures will call into question. And I'll do my best to stay out of that and leave my opinions out of it and leave my preferences out of it. Even though I know that as a person in the image of God, he's made me a certain way, but I will do my best to show you the counsel of God on how we love and live with God and others, and the aim is that we all joyfully submit to that, and that being justified will overflow in a desire to see justice in the world, to see the world end up like that last song that we sang, feasting in the house of Zion, having hearts restored. So in order to see that, we need to start with the question, who are we? 
essentially. And what we'll see in God's word over and over is the main point of what I want you to know today. So the main point of today is no matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done, your story fits into God's big story. The narrative of scripture. God's mission to make the world new again. So no matter who you are, where you're from, or even what you've done, your story fits into God's big story. It absolutely does. And so we're going to spend our time today telling that big story, cover to cover, in a high-level way. And we're going we're gonna to start in Genesis 1 and kind of give you some foundations. So let's consider this a walk in the park, right? It's kind of overwhelming, but really it's, it could be as simple as a walk, a walk in the park and talking with friends about who we are and what life is really like. So I, I just want to kind of start our time together this morning by talking about that. When I want to hang out with people, a lot of times what I'll say is, hey, let's take a walk. Especially since COVID has happened, some people might not be comfortable with me sitting six inches from them and like breathing heavily into their face. So we take walks. There's lots of walks in my life now, and that's how I relate to the friends that I love the most and the people that I'm getting to know. Walks, walks, walks. Or if you want to feed me, I'm okay with that too. I like eating. Eating is good. But walks are good too. And so some of the best, most memorable times that I can think of with y'all, with, with like specific like people in this room have been walking around my neighborhood, walking around Fairgrounds Park, walking around City Park. And sometimes it takes more laps than other times to really get to the bottom of whatever's going on in life. But walks have this refreshing, uh, healthy way of really getting to know people and, and really like enjoying creation at the same time. And another man liked to take walks as well. And I want to tell you about him. He'll kind of frame our discussion for this morning. He's a German philosopher that lived in the 19th century, and his name is Immanuel Kant. He's a German philosopher, and when he wanted to really ponder on some philosophical thing that he hadn't got to the bottom of yet, he'd take walks. And he loved working that way. He was still clocked in when he was taking those walks. And especially on summer afternoons, he would get out and he would walk around town and he would walk around this particular park often. So he found himself one summer day pondering some deep philosophical question, walking around this park, trying to get to the bottom of it, and he ends up sitting on a park bench and really just like focused in. Like, have you ever just seen someone that you're like, hey, like, <laughs> what are you up to right now? He was in the zone. He was at this park. He was sitting on a bench, staring off in the middle distance, and at some point, when he had been there for several hours, this cop walks up and says, are you okay? What, what, are, you, like, what are you doing right now? And Kant says, I'm thinking. Thanks for asking. <laughs> and so the policeman kind of like gives him the, the cockeyed look, and um, kind of the 19th century equivalent of like license and registration. I want to get to the bottom of this a little bit. He says, like, who are you? And Immanuel Kant responds with, sir, that is the precise question that I'm trying to figure out right now. And I'm going to be here for a while. <laughs> so 
That's what I want to talk about this morning, because each and every one of us in this room have wondered before, and probably wonder now from time to time, essentially, who am I? What is my purpose? What is my meaning? Does it come from my past? Does it come from my passions? Does it come from the people I associate with right now? Does it come from past choices that may feel like they constrict and define? Essentially, when you boil everything down, who am I? And it's uncomfortable when we think deeply about that because we have a solidified idea of who we are that we probably feel fairly strongly about. And you know what? Your friends have that idea too. They have priorities about who they would like you to be or who they think that you are. You know who else has great ideas about who they want you to be? The culture, Facebook, social media, all sorts of people and all sorts of spheres in the world have really strong ideas about who they want you to be, essentially. Where your desires need to be taking you. They feel strongly about that. And so does God. Amen? We're not alone in that. We don't have to like grope around the, in the dark and figure it out for us because, because God has already given us a game plan for that. God has given us a profile for essentially who every human being is. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And let me just encourage you this morning. According to the Bible, you are not primarily what you do. Even though what you do might be beautiful, it might be a great ministry. It might be pleasing to the Lord how you're raising your kids right now. But mom is not primarily who you are. It might be wonderful that you have a home that welcomes in people from all stripes, your friends, your family, your not friends yet. You might have a home that you prayed and said, God, make this a center of ministry and care. Help this foundational, help this building that I live in to be a way to preach the gospel. And you might be kicking butt at that. But homeowner, host, is not who you are. You might be a great friend. You might be that person that can listen better than anybody else and really make people feel heard and really have a way of specifically preaching the gospel, not to what they said at first, but as to who you have patiently perceived that person to be and where you have gently located their heart. You might be great at that. You might be a biblical counselor. You might have like, put time into training yourself and developing the skill set to seek that stuff out. And that might be paying beautiful dividends to the gospel. But that's not who you are either, essentially. Deeper than anything else that we can offer to others or even to the Lord, the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful label that we can clutch close to our chest is image of God. And in the month of May, I want to talk about that by using the phrase image bearer. So you're bearing the image of God. You've been given this image by your creator, and no matter what you have done with it or what has been done to you, the most beautiful thing about you is that you bear the image of your creator. 
That's the heart of what we're going to talk about in the month of May. So this morning, three points that will take us through the entire Bible in probably less than four hours. The first is the crown of creation. We're going to see where we fit in creation, and we're going to see that God has given us a beautiful place regardless of what we've done. The second thing we're going to see is that the image of God in us has been changed, modified, tragically so, because we are rebellious and distorted. As, as humanity, we are in a state of being rebellious and distorted, and that has done something to how the image of God looks in us. And then third, we're going to see that the cross changes everything. Everything. So that's going to be our, our schedule for this morning. That's going to be the flow of thought. So let's do the first one, the crown of creation. So more than anything else, we're made in God's image. And that's beautiful. And that's a thing that I hope that by the end of the month of May, you can hold on to tightly and that you can care deeply about and that it means something special to you. But it can be a little bit hard to comprehend unless you've dug deeply into it. Maybe if you grew up in church, it's a familiar idea to you that you're made in God's image, but you might be wondering, why does that matter that much? I don't really have that much of an of a affection to that idea. And that would be easy to, to understand in a modern, Western context. We don't really think about this concept of like somebody being the image of God that much, but when the Bible was written, that was the thing that really resonated with the people that would have heard the Bible in the time that it was written. Culturally speaking, if you lived in biblical times, you were probably used to people claiming to be the image of God. Most everyone in those times lived in this monarchical system. There was a king, and that king often claimed what's called a divine right. That king ruled because he said that he had been endowed by God with the authority to rule that place. And oftentimes, they would even use the terminology in the ancient Near East that these rulers were God's image. They were literally a reflection of God, and they were the representative of God. So submission to that authority was essential. Disobeying that king was disobedience to God because the king was God's image. That gave the king the authority to carry out whatever they wanted. The king decided what direction that nation was headed. You didn't get a vote. You didn't get a hashtag. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what you posted on ancient Facebook. They had absolute authority, and they didn't care what you thought about it. They were the ultimate authority on all matters. Business, politics, crime and punishment. In many places, there wasn't even a deliberative justice process. You would be subject to the authority and whatever whim that authority happened to have. So in that person's kingdom, they decided what was right and wrong. That's what the image of God looked like. This person defines reality. Right and wrong, according to the king, was right and wrong in your life, if you wanted to have a life. So these kings would also create idols, statues of wood, stone, or precious metal that were also said to be the physical embodiment of God on earth, or little images of God. Sometimes the words image and idol were even interchanged. And so we see idol worship happening in the Old Testament, 
as a reflection of this concept. Where is God? How do I direct my worship? This thing is where I can direct my worship. But Israel was different. Israel wasn't different because it wanted to be. Israel was different because it had received, they had received direction from God to do the exact opposite of what everyone else in their known world was doing. They didn't view their kings like gods. Their kings were known as appointed by the true God. They didn't view the image of God as, as a title to be bestowed on any authority figure. God actually explicitly told them in the Ten Commandments not to do that, not to have any other gods before them. And then what's the second one? To not have graven images, right? To not have any sort of idol that could be detracting from the worship of the true and living God. So don't bestow my title on a king. Don't etch my likeness into any physical anything. Why? Two reasons. Number one, the creator cannot be appropriately represented through something like that. There would be so much cheapening that would happen that it wouldn't bring glory to God. But the more important reason I would submit to you why he didn't want graven images, why he didn't want that title attributed to authority is that he'd already done it. It'd be a little bit redundant to call the king the image of God because he's already given that title to each and every one of his creations. And we're going to see that in Genesis chapter 1. It's a beautiful thing. Why would the king be the image of God when God has chosen to give that title to each and every living human being? So let's continue to like zoom in on Google Maps here and locate ourselves in the story of God. So go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's probably like page two or three. It's in the very beginning of your Bible. So we're going to go through the first chapter of Genesis. And I want you to see exactly where we're fitting in the story of Genesis chapter one. And I want to tell you a little bit of the storytelling that goes into the first chapter of Genesis. Because I want you to see that God has set up the world in an orderly, beautiful way and that he's given us authority. Now, as I explain this to you, some of these concepts might sound a little bit new, and, and know that I'm not trying to tell you this is a different way to read Genesis 1 than what you've heard before. I'm not saying that Genesis chapter 1 and creation didn't happen in six literal days. Th those are things that we have clear positions on as a church and that I'd love to talk to, to you about afterward, but for the purpose of our time this morning, I want to show you a layer of creation that really locates us, humans, and the purposes God has for us. So imagine this. The story of Genesis chapter 1 is God creating in multiple layers. God creates realms. He fills those realms up with life. He establishes authority within those life-filled zones that he creates. And then he establishes himself over this whole beautiful system that he created as the absolute undisputed king. So that might be new to you, so I'm going to say it again from a different way. And I'm going to say, let's think about building a house. When you think about Genesis chapter 1, think about building a house. How many of y'all ever built something resembling a house? 
Anything? Anybody? Something kind of sort of like that? How many of y'all have ever like lived in a house? Yes? More hands this time? That's good. Okay. So think about when you're moving into a house and how you would take ownership of this house and make this house your home. And so in a way, let's look at Genesis chapter 1 and, and let that help us see the way that creation is unfolding. So number one, this is the hierarchy of God's created order. Verses 3 through 10 of Genesis chapter 1 is showing that God is creating realms of existence. So verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was. And then God separated the light from the darkness. Verse 5, he gives names to them. He called the light day and the darkness night. And then he goes down in verse 6 and says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters separating the waters from the waters and God made the expanse and separated them and he called them heaven and earth there was evening and morning the second day and then verse 9 God said let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear so he's creating land and sea he's creating these environments in which life will occur so we see days 1 through 3 the creation of zones, realms, environments. And then after that, so when you're thinking about those realms, think about like framing out a room, hanging the drywall, actually saying this will be the living room. And it doesn't look like it because we haven't finished mudding and we definitely haven't got to the paint part yet. But I can see that this will be a living room one day. And then we move into the next phase, verses 11 through 15. God fills those realms up with life. Verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruits, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. So the earth is filled with plants and God saw that it was good. Verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. So in, in the sky, in the heavens, you have them being filled with stars. You're filling up these zones with life that brings glory to God. So think about buying the furniture. Think about hanging the wall art. This is becoming a place with beauty. This is becoming a place in which you can live because life is present there. So filling up those realms with life. So then authority comes through. Order comes through. Look at verse 16. I think this is so beautiful. So he creates and elevates authority figures in these realms. Verse 16. I've never thought of the sun and the moon like this until I saw the way that the story unfolds. Verse 16. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. Oh, and he created the stars. How awesome is God? It's like an afterthought in verse 16. Oh yeah, all those things. Verse 17, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Verse 18, here's the authority language I want you to see. To rule over the day, the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So inside these life-filled zones that God has created. He's establishing order. 
He's putting an org chart in place. He's making sure that the lines of authority are clear. Even in the sun and the moon, he's showing that there are orderly authority structures. People moving in, in a sense, to take ownership of these realms, even when we see the sun and the moon. Think, think in smaller ways about the ownership. Like, you know, saying to your kid, like, this one is your room. Like, this is going to be your room. Are they going to be like, where's the lease agreement? Where's my, you know, like, in a lesser way, like, of course, this is their room, but in, in a lesser way. And then at the end of day six, this is where we're going to really slow down and spend our time. God designates humanity as the co-rulers of these realms. God sets humanity apart in a new way. He makes them special. Think about the homeowners getting the keys to that whole house. Furnished turnkey. Moving in. This is ours. God sees humanity different than anything else that he's made so far. And if you've done any traveling, you know that this universe and this world is a beautiful, like, awe-inspiring, scary even, in its giant scope kind of place. And yet, when we think of all that, the works of his hands, what is man that he's mindful of us, right? This is, this is God's plan for us. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, locates us, people, humanity, in creation. So let's just read that whole portion here. And I want to show you what he's saying when he says, let us make man in our image. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then they break out into poetic praise. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So expanding, magnifying beauty in those three lines. You end up seeing male and female humans bringing glory to God. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth. And I've given you every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So in verse 26, you see God, literally God in the Godhead, consulting with themselves and, and saying, this part of creation is different. Let us together make this new thing humanity in our own image after our own likeness and when they say image and likeness 
That's like family talk. That's like spinning image kind of talk. That's like Piper looks like Amber kind of talk. Like family resemblance. Let us make man in a way that resembles God and that acts like God in ways that are different than the rest of the universe. Some scholars call humans the crown of creation, the object of God's special attention. And he gives humans two jobs, fill the earth and subdue it. Literally ends up being a lot like gardening in the Garden of Eden. So cultivate creation, manage it well, and take the world somewhere with the creative power and capability that I've given you. Use this world and its resources and develop it in a way that brings God, that bring God, brings God glory. So humans have this special place, and we're going to get into that more through the month. And then at the very end, this is the reason all of it exists, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work he had done in creation. So over this giant, beautiful, overwhelming thing, these rooms filled with life, ordered with authority, God establishes his kingship, and he sits down at the very top in the throne room of this beautiful thing, and he says, there's no way you can dispute that I am Lord over this whole thing. And everything is flourishing. Everything is worshipful to God. Everything's how it should be. Humans loving God and cultivating the world for his glory and under his authority. So that's where we are. That's the star on the mall map. Humans are intended to be worshiping King, our, our creator king, serving him with everything we have, and knowing that he's the true authority. He defines what good and evil is. He defines where we are and how we live our lives. Everything that we have is subject to his undisputed authority. That's what a beautiful, flourishing universe looks like, right? And that's exactly where we're living. Not. <laughs> like, something is obviously not like that, right? Like, a lot of things are not like that. Something had to have happened. And so that's the second chapter in the big story. And, and it's good to tell this story to ourselves, even if we've heard it a million times before, because we can see areas in our lives that can come into line with it again. So something has happened somewhere, and that leads to point number two. We are rebellious and distorted because of something that's happened in the past. So in Genesis chapter 3, the first humans, Adam and Eve, were faced with a dilemma. Do Adam and Eve live life just like we talked about, the way God intended? Good and evil are defined by him, and I'll function in that system. Or do they go away from that? Do they decide to define good and evil for themselves? So Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, this will crystallize what happened. And this is Satan speaking to Eve. 
Satan says to Eve in the garden, God knows that when you eat of this fruit on this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw, here's Eve's heart. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired because it made one wise, because of that overflowing in her heart, she reached out and took the fruit. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. So here's the inciting incident in the storyline. Adam and Eve decided that they would use the power that God had given to them for their own self-advantage. And that's where we diverge from God's intended purpose. The Bible Project says it this way. And if you've never seen the Bible Project before, um, you should like ring the bell, like subscribe on YouTube. They're just like wonderful explainers of the Bible because you can get really deep into scriptural things and, and be a little bit unclear, but they, they talk really simply and they draw out pictures and that helps me. So whenever they talked about the fall, they explained it this way. They said, Adam and Eve were unsatisfied with being images of God. And because they were unsatisfied in that state, they made a grab at being God instead. It's not that they just like slipped up and got misled by a really aggressive sales representative in the garden that happened to be the serpent. Like their hearts were in a place of being unsatisfied with the role God had given them. As image bearers, they, they got to this place where they would have rather defined good and evil for themselves. Ever since then, God's image has been distorted because Adam and Eve wanted God's world and the beauty and the blessing and the pleasure that comes from being who God's made us to be. They wanted all of that, but they wanted it on their terms. They didn't want the authority part that comes with living in this world. And so that led them into sin. And that sin has warped the image of God in us. It's really tragic, to be honest, because that image hasn't gone away, but it's been twisted in such a way that makes it even hard to recognize sometimes. It's almost like one of those, um, well, this will date me a little bit, like young people probably don't even know what this is, but like a carnival mirror. You know those old mirrors at the county fair and you'd go in and sometimes you'd be like this tiny little short person and then sometimes you'd be like a, okay, so like photo booth on your Mac, something like that. You can go through and do the filters and then your face gets all like squished and like swirled around and everything like that. Oftentimes you can still tell that it's you, but it sure don't look like you, right? So you end up sharing the pictures to people and they end up reacting on Facebook or whatever. But can you imagine if that sort of distortion wasn't temporary? Can you imagine if that change to like essentially who you are like was permanent? Like when your mom's like, you make that face one more time, it's going to stick like that. Like, you know, the effects of sin have warped and distorted the essence of who we are. Sin has caused us to live in a world of carnival mirrors. It distorts the image of God in us. And now we live in the midst of other people that are like that too. And the brokenness just compounds. That's where we are. 
And we find ourselves looking a lot more like the image of Adam, the image of Eve, the image of Genesis 3, a heck of a lot more than we look like the image of God, right? Away from the Lord, away from his grace in my life, I can tell you, I look a lot more like the image of Adam than the image of God. But that's the good news. That's why we sing and get together because the story doesn't stop there. Actually, the story of scripture from Genesis 3 is the rescue mission to redeem God's image. And God is redeeming his image in us because he loves his own glory. And us, when we reflect that glory in a, in a beautiful, authentic way, we make God look, look glorious. We give him the maximum amount of worship possible. And so he goes on a rescue mission for us and God's image through sending his son, Jesus. So that's the last point. The cross changes everything. And I want to show you something from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It won't, it won't be on the screen. I, I didn't want to do all this to Will. I have like 24 scripture verses and I could probably like see steam coming out of his ears. So just write this one down and come back to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 49. I think it encapsulates what Jesus does whenever he comes to earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's the gospel in a verse. Just as we have borne the image of the first Adam, through the work of Jesus on the cross, we bear the image of the man of heaven. And God longs to restore that image in us through Jesus. So let's slow down here as we're beginning to land the plane and say when Jesus comes to earth, he does two things, probably more than that, but we're going to talk about two main things to restore the image of God in us. Here they are. Number one, Jesus in his incarnate state, shows us what it truly looks like to embody the image of God. He shows us what it truly looks like to embody that image. And he does that by living a life of humble pursuit and service of others. So not only does he show us what it looks like to be God's image, he confronts all of the evil and the destruction we've made in our own sin by taking on the full force of that on the cross. So he shows us what the image of God truly looks like, and he allows our image to be restored by taking the consequences of that broken image. So let's zoom in on those for a minute. We'll go back to number one. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Jesus answers the question, what does the image of God look like? Because still, the image of God seems probably a little bit abstract. And God, in his kindness, wraps it all up in one person called Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's not just a particularly good 
image bearer. He's not like number one on the leaderboard until the next time you come and check and see if he's still on the leaderboard. Like, he is the essence of what it is to be God's image. The image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says he is the radiance of the glory of God. So just out of his essence, the glory of God is radiating. And Jesus is also the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Just like be awestruck by that. Like he's huge and worthy of worship. And when you think of God's image, think of Jesus. He exactly shows us what it is. So Jesus also demonstrates true image bearing because he didn't he did come to earth primarily on this rescue mission for us. But it's not like Jesus came straight to earth and straight to the cross. Jesus showed us so much more during his life and his ministry. And so Jesus is demonstrating true image bearing during his ministry by living a life of service and compassion. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Write this verse over your relationships. Write this verse over your friendships. Write this verse over your marriage because this is how Jesus pursued people in relationships. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So not having a posture of, give me all that I'm worth, although he was entitled to do that, but a posture of open palms up toward the Father saying, Lord, how do I give this away? How do I pursue people with goodness and mercy? How do I lay my life down for the good of other people, to serve and for Jesus to give his life as a ransom for many. Which brings us to the second point. Jesus confronts all of the evil and the destruction that we've created in our own sinful, broken, corrupt ruling by taking on the full force of that sin when he died on the cross. So not only does he perfectly show us the example of what God and his image looks like, he victoriously delivers the possibility of redemption to us. And that's really beautifully shown in Philippians chapter 2. And so I just want to read this to you and, and believer, just let this wash over you. This is who Jesus is. This is how we relate to him. Doubter, skeptic, let this show you what God really is like and allow your mind to be open to this. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul talks to Christians that he's encouraging to fight for unity. And he says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is what Christ looks like. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, even though he could have. But instead, he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So even though God in the flesh had every right for his life to go up, 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 his human life, he chose to go down, down, down in service and sacrifice for broken image bearers like us. He sees all the consequences for our selfishness, And he knows that without his help, 
we're not going to make it. No matter how good you did last week, no matter how long you fought off that temptation, without his help, he understands that it's, it's just pointless. The image of God in me and us is doomed without the intervention of Christ. This is how seriously God takes his own image. He went to the cross to make it possible for you to be a renewed image bearer, for you to walk in obedience, for you to beautifully show people what God is actually like. It's not just some add-on. Loving God and looking like God and serving others is not just like the nice, like, premium package of like being a church member. It's not just like the bells and whistles. The Lord took it seriously enough that he went to the cross to make it possible for us to image God fully. And flowing out from the cross and that work, we see born again believers able to live new kinds of lives. Able to live lives that are filled with love and the goodness of God and able to act fully in God's image one day. Amen? Imperfectly for now, but on a trajectory toward face-to-face union with him. That's the good stuff, because we see at the very end of the Bible, see, we've already got to the end. It didn't take that long, right? At the very end of the Bible, we see this picture, just like we sang about feasting in the house of Zion. We see a new earth where all of the saved people rule over creation along with the Lord, pushing the world forward as images of God with Jesus as their hope and their example. That's what we sing about. That's what should be in our imaginations. That's what should push us toward obedience when we don't have any gas left in the tank, is the fact that God promises that one day we'll feast with our hearts restored. We'll say together and we'll weep no more. And we'll do that by his strength. It's such a beautiful thing. True image bearing through the power of Christ and flowing out from the cross. And so we'll drill down into that more throughout the month of May, but this is just kind of like 101. Let's get our bearings. So in the next four weeks, we're going to be answering kind of like the response to this sort of truth. There's a guy in the 1970s, his name was Francis Schaeffer, and he did this thing called, How Shall We Then Live? And, you know, looking back, it was like he had the big collars, and it looks kind of hokey now, but, like, the idea is really beautiful. Like, once we have all of this truth, do we just, like, type it all in and click, like, Control-S and then, like, close the lid? Like, was that the point for us to, like, receive this information and say, ticket closed, you know? Like, what is the point of having this information? What's the point of actually believing this information? What will our hearts look like as we truly receive this and overflow in God's love? So that's the next four weeks. It's going to be answering that question. And over the next four weeks, we'll be thinking about this idea. It should be up on the screen. The justified image bearers will have a heart for justice. And I hope that's not too much of a curveball. And we're going to really talk about what I mean by that in the next four weeks. But we had to lay this foundation first. And when we see that us, in our brokenness, if we're honest with ourselves, in our helpless, hopeless state, 
when we receive justification, when we're truly pardoned for all the sin that sometimes we can't even stop thinking about, the sin that ensnares us, the sin that we don't want to admit to people that we respect, the sin that clouds us, and that even as Christians we say, am I defined by this? Can I release this to the Lord? When we truly understand and are thankful and appreciate the fact that we really are pardoned, we really are justified, then our hearts are just going to naturally overflow and a desire for justice for all sorts of people. For people that will surprise you, probably. And this might seem like it just maybe doesn't completely, like one doesn't lead to the other yet, and so that's the case that I want to build over the month of May, is to show you that. But let me tell you from another preacher his experience with how this happens in believers' lives. Tim Keller is a guy that he currently, his context is Manhattan, urban folks, educated folks, but he started his ministry in, in rural Virginia. And so he said throughout his ministry, preaching in country churches, city churches, it's all kind of looked the same to him. Here it is as we close. Quote, there is a direct correlation between a person's grasp and experience of God's grace for, their, for them and for their heart for justice in the poor. In both Manhattan and rural Virginia, I preach the same classic biblical message that God does not give justice to us, but saves us by free grace. And as I preached that, I discovered that those most affected by that message became the most sensitive to the social inequalities around them. And so this month, as, as we think about in, in our local culture, that May is National Foster Care Awareness Month, and as we can look around on the way to our car after this and, and see that there are needs that fill our community, I want us to hear this response to the gospel. And it's not comfortable for me either, so I'm with you. Those most affected by the message of the gospel will naturally become the most sensitive to the social inequalities around them. The more we really see and appreciate the beauty of God's grace, the more our heart's just naturally going to overflow in compassion. So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at what the Old Testament calls the quartet of the vulnerable. And I'm going to do my best to just show you what the scriptures say, because the Bible has lots to say about folks that are less fortunate and how we're supposed to interact with them. The quartet of the vulnerable is four groups. The widow, the refugee, the orphan, and the poor. And we'll be specifically asking ourselves, what is God's heart for these people in the scripture? And how can I be involved in God's work as I think about these groups of people? And this is not about doing. This is not about good works. This is about a heart overflowing with thankfulness from God and being obedient to the scriptures. Some biblical scholars call these group, these four, the quartet of the vulnerable, because throughout the Bible, we see God telling his people to care for them. And when they do, these four groups form a harmony of praise to God for all the grace that they didn't even deserve. And when we are part of that obedient help, 
our hearts join the chorus too. So starting next week with Mother's Day, we're going to see a beautiful story of redemption. Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at the book of Ruth, filled with orphans, uh, sorry, widows and refugees. And we're going to see God's heart toward them and how we can join in that redemptive story. And I'm like 200% excited for it, and I hope you are too. So with that, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the truth that we are not where we come from, and we're not who our family is, and we're not even that thing that we've done. We thank you so deeply that when it comes all down to it, the fact that we're made in your image is the most important thing about us. And we simply pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. That you would fill us with your love and lead us in your heart to those around us. We ask that when we see your beauty, that you would help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and that you would help us to just serve others out of the overflow. God, we ask that if we're struggling to believe right now, that you would give assurance from your spirit and that you would provide a way to dig deep into the questions that we have and that you'd open up this family to help us struggle together towards surer belief, firmer foundation, that you would help our faith journeys to just take the next step as we just walk with one another. Lord, prepare us to grow as believers, to enlarge our hearts for people and places and contexts and even assumptions that I have in my own heart about people that you've called us to serve. And we just ask that by the end of this month that we would look at our at the overflow of our hearts and we just give you praise for how you're growing us. We commit the rest of this time to you. In your name, amen.